Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We're on Hebrews 11 uh, through 12, just the first couple of verses of two, so mostly Hebrews 11. Today's pretty easy in some ways. So Hebrews has been a really dense book. I'm sure those of you who've been along with us have, have seen. I think it's a beautiful book. I think just the, the, the way he described or she describes the gospel, the, the, the way they go into the details, just helping us see how all of these things that, that we see in the Old Testament are really there to prepare us for the coming of the Messiah, for the fulfillment of the law, and, and for the fulfillment of everything it's about for our salvation. And Anyway, it's just a beautiful book. But he's been focusing on one particular thing throughout, right? Obviously, he's focusing on Jesus as the Messiah. But what he's really been emphasizing, and where we left off last week at the, um, in chapter 10, and even the first verse of 11, what he's really focusing on is faith. That's what the call is. The call is to believe God. God has made these promises, and the call is to believe God when he makes these promises. And it's really that simple. It's not any more complicated than that. That's what it comes down to. The author of Hebrews has been saying that, the reason some people didn't enter the promised land was because they didn't believe the promise. That God made a promise, and they didn't believe him. And the author's been pointing out how that's been the way it is throughout. That we just simply don't believe God, and when we don't believe God, we don't enter into his promises. We don't enter into his rest. And so that's what he's been saying about the Messiah. That to these Hebrews who are deciding, do we trust that Jesus is the Messiah, or do we not? He's saying it's like you're standing at the precipice of the promised land, at the border of the promised land, rather, and you haven't decided whether you're going in. And that he really wants them to, to go in simply by believing. So that's really the entire chapter of Hebrews. What he's going to do is he's going to give us example after example after example of people in the Old Testament who believed God. And that's what he begins to talk about, and that's why it's all about faith. So faith is the confidence, he says at the beginning, this is where we left off last week, that faith is the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. And he says this is what the ancients were commended for. Faith is the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. This is what, what all of these Old Testament characters are, are, are approved of and, and sort of, uh, they're in this hall of fame, you could call it the hall of faith list is because of their faith. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. And it's just, like I say, pretty simple. It's just going to be example after example. We're not going to parse it a lot. We're just going to see the examples and just be reminded about the importance of faith, that that is what God is calling us to in the gospel and even prior to that. So let's pray, and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this opportunity to just follow your gospel, the beauty of it, to learn about you through the scripture. And thank you so much for the book of Hebrews and the author, whoever it is, that you provided such a, just a beautiful and in-depth look at the gospel. Pray that tonight you would just encourage us, inspire us um, by these examples. And these things we pray in your son's name. Amen. I think that really is the goal that the author has here, is just to encourage and to inspire. And so he starts by saying, faith is the confidence of what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And so the first thing he says about faith is that it's confidence in the unseen. It's confidence in what is unseen. Obviously, we live in a in a, a world where materialism is kind of a big deal, right? There's a, there's a very strong philosophy that if you don't see it, if you can't tangibly uh, see it, that it is not real. That everything is material, and there is nothing which is not physical and material. 
And yet, those of us who believe in Christianity, obviously we believe in God, and God is spirit. And so he's reminding us that faith is the confidence that there are some things that we don't see. There are some things that are not visible to us. But what's really interesting is the author begins to go chronologically sort of through the people of, of, their, of their noble faith. What he does is he continually reminds us that, that doesn't mean that faith is blind. Just because we're believing that there are things we can't see, it doesn't mean that we're just simply deciding to believe that. He goes on to show there's evidence for that. It's reflected in things that we can see, right? Maybe like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effect that it has on the things around you. And so faith is not unreasonable, and it's not irrational, and it's not blind. But it is that you know that there are things that are unseen. And in, in the Christian world, we understand, in fact, that the unseen things are more eternal, are more permanent, and in that sense, you could even argue more substantive than the things that are not seen. So he says, by faith, for example, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So we see that, that the faith is confidence in the unseen, but not for no reason. We look at the universe, we can see the universe. It came from somewhere, right? And that's been, obviously, a lot of discussion and debate, but a lot of science has come out of the, the understanding that because of what we see is here, it tells us about things that we can't see. And, and the order that exists in the world tells us about an intelligent, intelligence behind it, right? And so he's saying, again, that faith is not simply for no reason. So as an example, he says, we look at the world, we see that it's here, and at that time for the Greeks and the Hebrews, both kind of the, the assumption that the, the universe came from something... That, that there's something that it came out of which we cannot see was, was sort of a given. And so he says this is an example that we can see. But I really want to, he's going to go into these explanations, these examples. So he says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Okay, this is a complicated sort of passage, but if you go back, what the story is, is that Abel and Cain, they were Adam and Eve's children. They were some of the first uh, people in the world, literally. And they both brought their offerings, their sacrifices to God. And what's interesting is that in the text of this story, we can make some speculation about maybe why one offering is more pleasing than another. But the truth is, the text itself doesn't tell us. All it tells us is that Abel made an offering, and Cain made an offering, and God was pleased with Abel's offering, and displeased with Cain's offering. And, and if we lay aside the speculation for a moment, which may be fine, but I want us to see what the author of Hebrews tells us we don't have to speculate on, which is that Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God because it was offered in faith. And Cain's sacrifice was not pleasing because it wasn't offered by faith. And I think it's that simple. That, that because there was something in the way that Abel offered a sacrifice that said, I believe God, and I believe that God is worthy of this, and, and I believe that God wants this. Whereas Cain did it for who knows what reason, it doesn't tell us. But maybe he did it to look good. Maybe he did it so that he wouldn't, so that, that God would be happy with him. But it wasn't for faith. It wasn't because of what he believed about the unseen. And I think what the story does reveal to us in the text in Genesis is Cain's response, that his response to this, when he doesn't get what he wants in return for what he gave, he is immediately angry and bitter, even to the point of murder. And, and, and that's when he murders his brother, which you probably know that story. And God says that Abel's blood speaks from the ground, right? Which I think is part of this idea that by faith, Abel still speaks. How does he still speak? 
Because again, he shows us that even at the very beginning, it wasn't just this act. It wasn't just this ritual. God wasn't just looking at people to do certain behaviors. You give the sacrifice, you give the sacrifice, all's good. He's looking at the heart. He's looking at the faith. And what mattered is that Abel's faith was there and Cain's faith was not there. And this, this was what Hebrews reminds us of, that the fundamental difference, that what God looks for is faith, not simply just sacrifice, not simply just following the rules. It's interesting that when you see the word obedience in Scripture, it really doesn't just mean following rules. It always means following God, right? It means believing God and then following him. So Abel makes the list just because of this, this sacrifice that he offers, that it was by faith. Then he says this, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. There's literally one or two verses on Enoch. It's in the list of a bunch of people. It's in those begats, right, where it says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he lived so many years, and then he died. And then so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he lived so many years, and then he died. And with Enoch, it says this unusual thing. It says, just says he didn't die. It says that he walked with God, and then one day God took him, and he was no more. And that's what this says here, that, that he could not be found because God had taken him away. So we have this idea that Enoch walked with God. And then God just spared him death because of that. That's a lot to think about there. Does that mean he's still alive? What does that mean? I don't know. Lots of interesting speculation on that. But again, what does Hebrews tell us? We do know. We know that Enoch was taken because he believed God, because he walked with God. Right? What a great epitaph. You know, we don't know anything about Enoch, but we know that. He walked with God. That's really just, I think that's the thing I would love, right, on my tombstone. He walked with God. What a great thing to be, to be known by, to be remembered for. And, and so that's what it says, but this is all we know about him, right? So again, we don't know the behaviors we performed, we don't know the specific rituals he did, because that's not the point. The point is that look at the amazing things these guys did. Enoch may have been a prophet, we don't know what he prophesied, did he fight battles, did he fight, we don't know. All we know is he walked with God. And that's what pleases God, the faith of Enoch. Enoch just lived in an awareness of the reality and the closeness of God, and this pleased God. It goes on, he says, before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So there's really two things that are kind of fundamental, kind of basic. You know, if you're like, what is God's will? What does God want? Really, it's very basic. There's two things, I think, more than anything, he wants you to know. And these two things, says the author of Hebrews, are even at the core of the gospel. And what are these two things? One, that he's real, <laughs> that he exists. But two, that he's good, that he rewards those who seek him, that all he wants is people to, to walk with him, to seek him, to be in a relationship with him. That's what faith is. That's what God wants you to know. It pleases him when you believe he's real and you believe he's good. When you believe he's real, and you believe he's worth pursuing. When you believe he's real, and you look for him, that's what pleases God. Not getting it all right, not doing everything perfectly, not figuring out everything. Just walking with that awareness and seeking him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Again, what are the things we see? Noah was warned about things not yet seen. The idea of building an ark, a big, big boat in the desert, when rain was not something they were seeing regularly, if at all. The idea that it was going to flood enough that this huge boat would float. The idea that he had to collect all these animals and put them on the boat. 
And we're told it takes about 100 years for him to complete this project. That means for 100 years, with no sign of rain, he's the laughingstock of the people around him, right? They're watching him build the ark. Crazy Noah's building his ark. But as he builds the ark, he's doing it because he believes in things he cannot see. But not without reason. He believes in things he cannot see because he's learned from Cain and Abel and Enoch and all the people before him. He's learned that God is real God rewards those who seek him. And so he reasons that if God says it's going to rain, it's going to rain. And so he builds this ark. And when he talks about him building the ark and by this condemning the world, the idea is that, again, you have all these people watching him do it. They have the opportunity, the choice to believe God. I'm sure that Noah told people what he was doing and why he was doing it. And they had a choice to believe God. They had the same opportunity he did, but they didn't. And in that, they condemned themselves, right? And Noah, because he built the ark, he was saved and moved forward in, in the righteousness. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Again, what's the common denominator? He, see, he doesn't see what he's called to, right? He believes there's a land out there, but he doesn't see it. Now, Abraham gets a lot of, of press in the Hebrews, and that's because... He's really important to the Hebrew nation, right? He is the father of the entire Israelite race, right? And so, and, but he's also this example to the entire Israelite race of what it means to walk by faith. Three different letter writers, three different epistle writers, and here also the author of Hebrews, all refer to Abraham as the example of faith, of how your faith makes you righteous. And as we, as we look at that here in the book of Hebrews, he starts with this. He says he's called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance. So what is this talking about? Here's the thing about Abraham you need to know. God made Abraham four promises, just right off the bat. He said to him, Abraham, I'm going to make you these promises. He made a kind of covenant with them, but really God said, this is a covenant I'm going to keep regardless of what you do. I just promise you these things. And he promised him, number one, that he would give Abraham his own land. He would give him his own sort of inheritance. And number two, he promised Abraham that he would have so many children, so many descendants, they would be like the stars of the sky or the sands of the beach. And then he promised Abraham that he would be their God. He would be his God and the people, the nation's God. And then he promised Abraham that he would always be with them. That no matter what happened, he would be with them. Sorry, that's being their God too. He promised he would be with them. And then he promised that through them, they would bless all nations. So the four promises, the land, the children, that he would be their God, be with them always, and that they would bless other nations, the whole world. And these are the promises that Abraham holds on to and his children hold on to. But none of these are seen yet. And it starts with Abraham, the first promise being, this is the land I'm sending you to, which will be your inheritance. And Abraham's never seen it. He doesn't know anything about it. He can't get a hold of a tour guide, a tour book to read about it. He just trusts God. And he gets up and he packs everything up and he leaves his homeland and he travels to this place that God called him to. But again, does God do it without reason? No, he knows God. He has this relationship with God where God is making these promises. He does it because he believes that God is good, that God makes a promise, he keeps it. It goes on, it says, By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Isaac and Jacob were his kids. They hold on to the same promises. They hold on to the same inheritance. For he was looking forward to the city of foundations whose architect and builder is God. 
We see right here at the beginning the author of Hebrews is connecting what happened with Abraham to the idea that there is a kingdom of God. There's a kingdom that's, that's bigger and different than the foundations we see as we live on this earth. And he's reminding the, the, the readers of Hebrews that as well. And he's saying, you can't see that kingdom, you can't see that city, but faith is to believe in things you can't see because God is good, because you believe in God's promises. He goes on and he says, And by faith Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. So here again, when they looked at their body, when Sarah looked at her body, when Abraham looked at his body, when they looked at their marriage, when they looked at their advanced age, and God said to them, you're going to have a child, what they saw didn't really indicate that. <laughs> that what was seen wasn't there, but they believed what God had promised. Again, this is not simply saying believe in positive things or manifesting things by what you believe. Abraham did not manifest the promised land. Sarah did not manifest her children simply because she wanted them so badly. That is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about that God promised it, and in response, they believed. It's not that we believe, and in response, God does it for us. That's a confusion that sometimes we, we say about faith, and I think it's a, a particularly dangerous thought if we take it too far. But what isn't dangerous is to realize that believing in things we can't see because the unseen God promises them is never foolish. That's always rational, and it's always smart. And so Sarah believes. So she's on the list of the Hall of Faith. And so from this one man, says the author of Hebrews, and he as good as dead, that means again they're very old, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore, all these people were still living by faith when they died. Everyone we've seen an example of what he's pointing out is this promise to come. All of this is referring in one way or another to the Messiah, to that rest, to the promised land that hasn't arrived yet. And yet none of them saw it before they died. Abraham didn't see his descendants. He saw that he had a few kids. But he didn't see the numerous descendants that God had promised, but he believed that. And he clung to that. But he didn't see it. He died without seeing it. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They looked at the things they could see, the tangible things around them, and they said, we can see them. We believe they're real. We're not, we're not being stupid and saying they aren't real. But we also believe these are not our home. These are not the most fundamental things to us. We're all spiritual people, and the most fundamental things to us are things of the Spirit. And so they see themselves, and we see ourselves as foreigners and strangers on this earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Abraham refers to himself as a stranger in a strange land, a foreigner. And the author of Hebrews is pointing out if all he meant was he wanted to go back home, he would have gone back home. <laughs> but Abraham understood there was more than that to come. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And then that, that kind of goes along with this, this parentheses, right? That, that all of us are like that as we continue, that the Hebrews see that everybody going forward was like that. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So, the author of Hebrews is connecting what happened with Abraham to where the Hebrews are today and saying, don't forget, this is our father. We have the same faith, the same thing to look forward to, a kingdom, which is not this one on earth. Because right now we're being oppressed by the Romans, they would have said. But that's okay, because we belong to a heavenly country. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. So this is interesting because this is one of the really difficult stories in the Old Testament. And I love the fact that the author of Hebrews actually gives us a little bit of clarity to it that we don't get from the text in Genesis. 
What happens in Genesis is that God tells Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, uh, I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him on the altar. Now, there's a lot wrong with this. One is that you're not wrong if that makes you uncomfortable. The truth is, God was clearly against human sacrifice. Has been, clearly is. When his law comes up later, he's very clear about that. And I think Abraham knew the kind of God that God was and would have been uncomfortable with the idea in general that God was asking him to do this. It wouldn't have been something that sat well with him. But there's another big problem with it. And that's that this is after God has already told Abraham, you will have multiple descendants through Isaac. But Isaac is still a boy. He hasn't yet had any children of his own. So if Abraham sacrifices Isaac, that means that the promise of God becomes null and void. And this becomes a dilemma for Abraham. God, who promised me children through Isaac, now tells me to sacrifice Isaac. What is going on? What happens here? And this is what the author of Hebrews tells us. He who had embraced the promises, right? So those four promises, you'll have a land, you'll have children, you'll, you'll be my people, and you'll bless all nations. It's all going to come to an end if he sacrifices Isaac. He's embraced these promises that they're going to come through his son. So he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And the next two words, I think, are so important to us to understand faith. The author says, Abraham reasoned. See, faith is not blind, and it's not opposed to reason. It's not saying, well, my reason tells me this, but my faith tells me this. No, he reasoned. Now, let's listen to what he reasoned, because it's interesting, because it's wrong, and it's right at the same time. Here's what he reasoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so when our men are speaking, he did receive Isaac back from, de from death. Here's what happens in the story, if you don't know it. When Abraham takes Isaac, he, he believes God. He's going to follow him. That's what we're told here. He, he trusts God, so he takes Isaac up. He's getting ready to sacrifice him, and then God says, no, don't do it. I just, I see that you're faithful and you trust me, but I don't really want you to sacrifice your son. That's how the story ends, but, but Abraham didn't know that was going to happen. What Abraham reasoned was that God was going to follow through on his promise. That's what Abraham reasoned. Then no matter what God was telling him now, God was going to follow through on his promise because God doesn't lie. And God doesn't make up stuff. And God isn't unfaithful, right? So when God says to him, I want you to sacrifice your son, Abraham reasons, well, God's asking me to do this, so it must be the thing to do. But I also know that he's going to honor his promises. So I guess, you know, not, death is no hindrance to God. God could even raise Isaac from the dead. And what I want you to see by this is that Abraham reasons, but he starts as his supposition as his premise for reasoning, he starts with the goodness of God. He starts with the reliability of God, with the faithfulness of God, with the promises of God. And he starts with that and reasons from there and comes to the conclusion that one way or another, Isaac will not stay dead. And in that, he's right. Now, he didn't figure out the exact answer, and that's important for us to know, too. We aren't smart enough to always figure out exactly what's going to happen. But we can reason and always count on the goodness of God. And this is the point. Again, faith isn't about creating things or initiating weird moves and then trusting God to fall in behind. Abraham wasn't like, hey, everybody watch me. I'm going to do this weird thing and take my son and go show you how faithful I am. No. This was a terrible moment for Abraham, and I think he kept it as quiet as he could because he didn't know what was going to happen, but it was painful and it was hard. And it wasn't about blindly doing what was asked, but reasoning always from the rock, which is God, from the foundation, which is his faithfulness, and his love, and his goodness. And Abraham trusted the goodness of God here. It goes on, it says, By faith, Isaac, 
blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. So Isaac has some kids, and he looks at Jacob and Esau, and he says he blesses them both. But what does it mean to bless them in regard to their future? It means he believes there is a future. Can he see the future? No, he cannot. So once again, he's believing in something unseen based upon the promises of God. The blessing he gives them is based upon the understanding that God is good, and God is in control, and God will fulfill his promises, which are to be through them. They remember the promises that Abraham had, because I'm sure he passed them on. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. I love that little extra note. Here's why. So the first thing is, Jacob is like Isaac. He blesses his sons. He's like, yep, the future's going forward. You're going to be, turns out, I don't think he, he kind of is, blessing kind of shows maybe some awareness of this. They end up becoming what we call the 12 tribes. They become the, the fathers of all the Israelites. But, but it's not just like Isaac that he blesses them. I love this idea that he's... He worships as he leans on his staff. Here's what I think that means. Jacob, we know from the story, was a fighter. He was a striver. His name even means to strive. And he would wrestle, and he would fight. And he, he's the one who famously even, God decides to come down in physical form so Jacob can wrestle with him. Because it's the only way Jacob can kind of get to a place of really trusting God's goodness. And that's kind of his motif throughout his life. He strives and he wrestles and he struggles and he deceives and he, he manipulates and he does what he can do to get around. And now he's an old man and he can't do anything. And he sees his children going forward and all he can do is bless them and he's leaning on his staff because it's the end of his days. He's dying. He's got no strength left. And he knows he can't fight anymore. And yet at that moment, instead of being anxious about that, instead of being worried about that, it says he worshipped God. I love that. Because it shows, I think, that Jacob took him a lifetime, but he came to this place of leaning on God instead of wrestling with God. Believing what he couldn't see would take care of all the things he could see. By faith, Joseph, when the end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Now, this is a fascinating point, too. This is really interesting. That Joseph also, so Joseph, you may remember the story, he goes through his whole life, he gets sold into slavery, and then he rises up to become Pharaoh's right-hand man, and he's in Egypt. But at the end of his life, and, and it goes on, in fact, that after he dies, uh, all the, or as he's dying, his family comes to, to Egypt with him because of the famine, they grow up there, and then for the next two to three hundred years, the Israelites are in Egypt, they become slaves there. They're not in the promised land where God had promised they would be. And as Joseph is dying, he does this interesting thing, which shows his faith in the promises of God. Here he is, one of the most powerful men in the world, but he's not comfortable with that. He's not content with that. What he says is, when I die, I want you to take my bones and bury them with my father in the promised land. What is he saying? I believe that you will all end up back in the promised land. I believe that you will all go back to the promised land. And so he's showing, again, his faith in what is unseen. And why? Because God promised it. Because he promised it would happen. And Joseph believes it. And sure enough, 200 years later, when Moses leads them out of Egypt, it says that they took the bones of Joseph with them. They made sure to go ahead and do that. And that leads us, in fact, to Moses. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So the parents of Moses, this was again at a time when the, the, the king had decreed, the pharaoh had decreed, that all of the children under a certain age should be killed. And it may have been that there was a prophecy that concerned him, who knows, 
But all the male children, all the male Hebrew children were to be killed. We do know that he was worried about them being so populous, and if they realized how big they were, he was afraid they were going to revolt and, and get away. So he orders this death. Moses' parents, though, they don't do it. Now, we don't know why they believed he was special. Maybe God spoke to them. Maybe he promised them. We don't know why. But what's interesting to me is their lack of fear of the king's edict. It says here they were not afraid of the king's edict. Faith led them to trust in a greater law. They saw that sometimes the unseen laws of God are greater than the laws that we create ourselves. And we've seen that in our own history. People like Harriet Tubman or Martin Luther King Jr. have recognized themselves a greater law. They spoke of that, of a greater law that supersedes the, the law of the land. Again, this isn't just something we get to make up for our own convenience. But when it comes from an actual faith and an actual God and his goodness and his promises, then it can lead to great change of the things that are in our land. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. So what happens is his parents hide Moses, then they put him in the river, and he gets found by the Pharaoh's daughter, who basically gets adopted into the Pharaoh's family. He could have, like Joseph, he could have just been content and stayed there, but like Joseph, he really wasn't. He knew that wasn't the end. He knew there was a promise for them that didn't end in Egypt. And so when he'd grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What's right in front of him? What can he see? His riches, his glory, his power. What is he believing in? The things he can't see. His God and the promises of God. Right? How easy it would have been. Whether it's trials or victory, trials or, or glory and comfort, either one can, can move our eyes from the eternal things into the temporal things and confuse us. But think if Moses had done that. None of us would know who he was today, right? He was able to see further down the line, to see the God who called him. So he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ, the sake of the Messiah. He obviously didn't know who Jesus was, but he did know the Messiah. That's part of the promise they were already looking for on one level or another, one way or another. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. His faith showed him that the things he couldn't see had more substance than the things he could. By faith... He left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. What an interesting phrase. He actually saw him who is invisible, right? That's what faith is. It's seeing the invisible. Not making it up, not pretending, but seeing it from the reflections from the things that happened to us. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. We don't have a lot of time to go into all the details of this story, but a lot of you are familiar with it, and it's a great story, and this is the moment just before they leave Egypt. God has done a lot of plagues in Egypt, and he does one final plague, and in this final plague, all the firstborn children, kind of reminiscent of what Pharaoh tried to do with Moses, right? All the firstborn children are going to be, they're going to die. But God tells the, tells the Israelites, and he tells Moses, and, and really in the hearing of all the Egyptians, because Moses tells Pharaoh, he tells them, look, go ahead and sacrifice a lamb, Put the blood on the lintel of your doorpost, and that will be a sign to the angel of death to pass over your house, to not enter your house, and your children will live. There's nothing, by the way, in the text that says that the Egyptians couldn't have done the same. That if they had trusted their God more than they trusted Pharaoh, maybe they would have, and maybe their children would have been spared. The point is that anyone who does that was going to be spared. And so the Israelites, this is a way they show their faith. The Passover is all about faith. It's about believing the goodness of God. The promises of God. 
By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Here's another good reminder about faith. Did the Egyptians drown because they didn't believe enough? No, they drowned because God didn't keep the water open for them. Did the, did the Israelites cross through because they believed so hard on something they wanted to happen? No, they passed through because God opened the water for them. But the point is this. If the Israelites didn't believe God would hold the water open to them, if they were more concerned about, if they feared the Pharaoh more than they feared God, then they wouldn't have entered the Red Sea. They would have been afraid it would have collapsed onto them, and they would have taken their risk with, with the Pharaoh. But instead, they trusted God more, and they went into the Red Sea. But the reverse is true of the Hebrews, I mean, of the, of the Egyptians. Why did they march into this wall of water on either side? It must have been a scary thing to, to be walking down this narrow alleyway of land and a wall of water on either side of you that could collapse at any moment. Why did the Egyptians follow into the Red Sea like that? Because they were more afraid of Pharaoh than they were of God. And Pharaoh said, go, and they trusted him more than they trusted God. Where is your faith? In the promises of God, the reality of God. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. So it doesn't mention Joshua by name, but clearly this is the, the leader who leads them into Jericho. Again, the walls of Jericho fell because God said they would. They trusted him. They marched around the walls because God told them to. This wasn't a crazy idea that they just manifested. This is just a response to God. Believing God's promises, doing what he asks. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. This is an example of a Gentile who was spared by faith. This is an example of a Gentile who responded to the God of the Israelites and said, I trust him more than I trust the God of the Canaanites, my own homeland, and so I'm going to protect you. And because of that, she becomes an example of faith and even becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and it became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, and they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. It's interesting. He says, what shall I tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah? Those are all judges. Then he goes on and says about David and Samuel, David's a king. And then he says, and the prophets, and those are the prophets. He's really talking about everybody through the rest of the Old Testament, right? The book of Judges, the book of King, uh, the kings, and the prophets throughout the rest of history. He's saying there have always been people who trusted God. And did it always work out in their lives being filled with good things? It didn't. And did it always work out that what they saw in their lives showed the goodness and promises of God? It didn't. Sometimes the things they were waiting for hadn't even come yet. In fact, says the author of Hebrews, in terms of what we're talking about, none of them got to see it. But they persevered by faith. And that's what he says. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. See, it's not that God was mean to them or he withheld from them. They get the promise of God too. They also get the salvation of the Messiah. But they were looking forward to the Messiah. What a blessed time we live in. 
that we have more reason to believe the promises of God than most who came before us. They looked ahead to what we've already seen. Do not ignore the evidence. Don't dismiss it if it happens to point to unseen things as well. You know, the only reason people dismiss Jesus and the amazing things he did was because it points to something more than material. Because the existence and the reality of Jesus, his message, his death, and his resurrection forces you, if you're going to accept it, to believe in the supernatural. And if you're already predisposed to not believe in the supernatural, if you believe that the only thing that matters is what's material, then you're ignoring the evidence because it points to something you've already decided doesn't exist. But we live in a blessed time when God has made himself more visible than at any other time in history as Jesus walked the earth. And we have the testimony, and we have the resurrection, and we have the eyewitness accounts. And it is not irrational or unreasonable to believe in the unseen things when a man who spoke of an unseen kingdom and an unseen God and an unseen heaven came back to life from the dead. Therefore, therefore, after all these examples, after all these exhortations about faith, what do we do with that? What are we to make of this chapter? It's, it's to inspire us to one thing. And at the beginning of chapter 12, he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, but notice this last line, how he himself is an example of faith. What does he do? For the joy set before him, a joy he could not yet see, a joy that we would walk with him, the joy of our salvation, of our relationship with him, the joy of that was not visible to him as Peter denied him and Judas betrayed him and his apostles ran from him and he was hung on the cross to die. None of that was joyful and none of that was, vis was, was, a, was a visible proof of the promises. But for the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross and he scorned its shame. He said, doesn't even matter. Doesn't even matter. And with that great witness, and all the witnesses of the Old Testament that we just read about, what are they witnessing? What are they testifying to? Are they testifying to their own greatness? To their own beautiful nobility and faithfulness? No. Some of those members, Samson, Jephthah, some of those guys were not great people. Even Noah was so disobedient at times, not a good guy to his children sometimes. As you look through the list, there's so much flaw, there's so much frailty, there's so much failure. So if they're not testifying to their own ability to stand firm, what are they testifying to? They're testifying to the goodness of God. They're testifying to how reasonable it is to believe in the promises of the unseen God as larger than the seen world.
That's what they're testifying to. That's what they're witnesses to. And that's because of those witnesses. And because of Jesus. We are called to lift our eyes from the mire around us. From the mud and the swamp and the world and the things that grab the attention of our eyes. And we're called to lift our eyes to the heavens, says Isaiah. Look at the stars. Who created all these? Lift up your eyes. There's much beauty to behold. We have witnesses to the reliability of God. Faith is to look at that and remember the promises of God and see those as more reliable, more solid, more concrete, more foundation than the things we see around us. The things we see around us can hurt us. The things we see around us are real. Some of the things we see around us are beautiful. All of that is true and real, and I wouldn't ask you to ignore or deny any of that. But I would also ask you not to deny that the unseen things are more permanent, more eternal, and more real. God wins. Justice will win. Love never fails. Good overcomes evil. Be people of faith who run the race with perseverance, who fix your eyes on Jesus. I think we've seen, and you probably have examples in your own life, how easy it is anybody who chooses to not fix their eyes on Jesus can find themselves led astray and seeing things wrong and reasoning from the wrong premises, forgetting the promises of God and thinking we have to make it happen and figure it out and work it all out ourselves. But instead, the author of Hebrews says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.